Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you promised that when two or three were gathered in your name, there you would be in our midst. Come now and teach us as we would listen to your words. Help us to find them to be words of life for us. Amen. Well, I want to say at the beginning uh, a word to the children in the room, uh, because this is one of the greatest passages in the gospel, uh, and it names um, Jesus' readiness to welcome children. And it's okay, I don't expect you to actually be listening, because I have children and I know what it's like. But I want to just say that if you're like the children in my family, this week may have been busy for you, and there may have been adult needs that caused your needs to get pushed to the side. I just want you to hear this morning how ready Jesus is to welcome you, to make space, because you are emblematic of what it means to be in the kingdom of God. So thank you. And also to the older children in the room uh, who at times to times may hear distracting noises from children, just want to let you hear that uh, these children are so important to this church. So thank you for your patience and your grace, especially for their parents who do so much work to bring them here. All right. Now I want to talk about the harder part of the gospel passage today, but I want to make a caveat at the beginning to say a couple things. Uh, We practice a lectionary cycle here at the church, so the the passages each week are chosen for us by our lectionary pattern. I'm saying that for a couple reasons. Um, One is that I'm new to our church, and I know there are a number of marriages in the church, including mine, that are not perfect. And I just want to say that I'm drawing on what I'm about to say what I'm about to say from the scriptures and from my own experience. And so uh, I just know when things are deeply sensitive with respect to marriage and struggles, uh, occasionally somebody can feel that this was meant for me. And I just want to say that I'm, uh, that's not any intention. But if anything stings or if anything hits a nerve, uh, please, let's talk uh, this week. This is a difficult subject, and it's a thing to walk together with one another through. So let's talk about divorce. That's what you want to hear on Sunday morning, right? Um, But there it is for Jesus. We should listen to him. So in Mark, the passage begins, as you probably noticed, with Jesus being tested by the Pharisees. And if you're a reader of the Gospels or you've ever heard a sermon about the Pharisees, you're not terribly surprised because they don't usually show up as Jesus' friends, although it does happen once or twice. But they come to test him. And it's, it's actually strange in this instance because they come and they raise a question about divorce. In the first century, in the land of Palestine and Israel, almost all, in fact, all the Jewish groups that we know about allowed for divorce. The idea that you wouldn't, the question that they ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? The obvious question in the first century is, of course. In fact, there's a passage from Deuteronomy that gets mentioned in our passage that seems to justify this very thing. So it's a little strange that the Pharisees ask Jesus this question. And it may be that they ask it to him because Jesus had previously been teaching against divorce. You can imagine that if they knew about this, you know, maybe this isn't the first time they've heard about this, they come with a pre-prepared question because there's been some sort of controversial teaching and they come perhaps to set the record straight, or perhaps to show Jesus publicly that he's in conflict with the Torah. So Jesus responds to their question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, with another question, what did Moses command you? And they give a good answer. They cite Deuteronomy 24. 
Now, in, unless you were already reading Deuteronomy 24 this morning, let me tell you what it says. It's something like this. If a man marries a woman and finds something objectionable in her and sends her away with a certificate of divorce, that same phrase that we heard from the gospel, sends her away with a certificate of divorce, of divorce and she marries another guy who also finds something objectionable and sends her away, and then that dude number two dies, dude number one can't remarry her. That's kind of Deuteronomy 24, right? So you can tell already, already in the way that I've described it. It's not a uh, divine blessing upon divorce, but it's also not a prohibition against divorce, is it? The writer seems to assume divorce is going to happen and puts some parameters in place around how divorce and remarriage should happen. There should be a certificate of divorce and uh, remarriage after marriage to a second spouse seems uh, to be inappropriate. In fact, it's an abomination, Deuteronomy says. It's a pretty good answer, don't you think, from the Pharisees? Yep. If the question is, what does God want us to do about marriage and divorce, listening to the Bible is not a bad idea if you're a Pharisee in the first century. But Jesus doesn't have it. He goes back to them, and he says a striking thing, that the law was given because of your hardness of heart. In fact, the law doesn't give a counsel of perfection here. It gives a concession to human hard-heartedness. And in order to explain what God really wants, Jesus also goes to the law, but he goes back farther. He digs deep into the story of human creation, and he finds there, in what is a great Jewish exegetical fashion, uh, the, the kernel and the, the elements of an argument. He says, citing Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created them male and female. And those two singular words, it's not, here's, here's I think the, the exegetical point that's a little bit buried in the text. It's not male and females, or females and male, such that you might be, you might have more than one in your life but one and one. That is, the, kernel, the, the, the idea of permanency is there. And then he goes on with the, the uh, quotation from Genesis 2, which we already heard read this morning. Therefore, a man shall leave father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And that's the end of the quotation. And then Jesus goes on in the part that we read. Therefore, what God has joined together... See, this coming together is a thing Jesus says God has done. Therefore, let no person, let no human, let no man separate it. See, the contrast between God's action and bringing together husband and wife in marriage is, is contrasted. This action is contrasted to human divorce. So what we really see, Jesus says, the deeper meaning of the story of creation is that this was never God's intention and plan. So, what do we do with that? I live in the same world you do. There's a ton of divorce. There's a ton of brokenness in marriage, isn't there? Yeah. In fact, we live at a time and place in world history in which marriage is probably not doing nearly as well as an institution. Granted, there are some upsides to where we live in history, right? Um, but I think it's a challenge for us to think about what to do with this. Because it's a harsh statement. Whatever God has said, whatever God has joined together, let not human beings separate. I think there are three things for us to think about in reflection on this. And the first is that I want us to reckon with the New Testament's realism 
and grace about divorce and remarriage. What we hear in Mark's gospel is Jesus' no to divorce, and in fact is no to remarriage. But in Matthew's gospel, in the same account, we hear a little bit of a concern in the early church to reckon with the reality that divorce happens, that marriages break. Jesus' words in Matthew are very similar to those in Mark, except they go something like this. If anybody divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, there's an exception clause. There's a recognition that there might be a legitimate grounds in some cases for divorce. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is counseling the church in Corinth, which has a ton of problems, especially a ton of problems related to sex and marriage. Um, marrying the wrong people, marrying your aunt, or your, sorry, your mother-in-law, uh, bad mojo in Corinth. Um, and, but one of the things that Jesus, uh, the, excuse me, that Paul says um, is that he recognizes that there's going to be times when one spouse just leaves. And in that case, he says, the remaining spouse isn't bound. There's a recognition in early Christian reflection that even the strong principle, even a dominical saying, a word from Jesus that says one must not separate what God has yoked together, a recognition that this will happen. And there's a provision of grace in the midst of that. Paul says at the end of that little section, God has called us to peace. This morning I was uh, preparing for this and sitting by a little candle that I like to light. It's in a little glass jar. And all of a sudden, for no, well, to my mind, I'm sure there's a reason. It's not like a, you know, an effect without a cause. But um, there's apparently to me no reason that the glass that's holding the candle just breaks on the table. On the, on the table. And I thought, wow, oh, isn't that how it is sometimes? Sometimes things break. Well, what do we do when things are broken? If there are caveats that can be said about times in which, in deep counsel with community, with pastors, with friends, um, we make hard decisions. Nevertheless, doesn't this passage today call us to enter into Jesus' teaching, to try to enter into it? And yet when we do, what we're faced with, I think, is the reality that we live in a world we live in a culture, especially right now, in which the stream of wisdom, so-called cultural wisdom about marriage and about relationships flows directly against Jesus' teaching. It is a hard teaching for today. Um, two examples. There was an op-ed in the New York Times, you may have read this week, um, that was, I don't remember the title, but the substance of the article is this. Sometimes the most radical act of self-love can be to divorce your spouse. And it is not quite a celebration of divorce, divorce, but maybe a championing of the decision, not for lack of love, but for other reasons in one's life, the pursuit of career, the pursuit of uh, ease of family life, and other reasons, the decision to divorce can be a radical act of self-love. It's difficult to square that with our Lord's teaching though it remains a hard teaching. The other example I'll just give you, because if you haven't been watching the, sh the TV show Ted Lasso, 
I just want to recommend it. It's not for children, uh, but it's, uh, it's, a, it, it's an Emmy Award winning uh, uh, show, and so I won't say much more other than it's a good show. But um, there's, there's an important relationship in the show between uh, an, an important and powerful woman and her ex-husband. Rebecca is her name, Rupert is his. And the producers of the show and the actors in the show have done a wonderful job making you despise Rupert. He's a serial adulterer. He's a, he's a sort of terrible uh, sort of reptile of a man. Um, and it, what we get from this is that there's, a, there's a, a sort of a mood of liberation. And in reality, her story is one of liberation from this man. And yet... What the show, I think, very realistically presents is that when the divorce is over, which is, which is the entirety of the, of, the, of the story, the story's not about the divorce, but about their relationship um, afterwards, what we realize, what the reader realizes very clearly is that her entanglement, Rebecca's entanglement with Rupert, is not over. There's deep entanglement there. Because there's a truth in what Jesus has said that what God has joined together is in fact together. Some of you know from the experience of divorce in your own life or in the lives of others that the rupture of a marriage does not end the relationship generally with the previous spouse. It lives on in a different form. And so, if it's really true, if there is a sense in which what God has joined together remains in some broken, entangled way together. What are we to make of this? And one of the things that Jesus' disciples say in the Gospel of Matthew, not in our reading today, is that we see them actually come to terms with this difficulty. When they come into the house with Jesus, they say, if that's the way that it is with a man and a wife, it's better not to get married. And I think some of us reading it say, whew, there might be some truth to that. In fact, Jesus responds with a saying about eunuchs, which is quite interesting. But he says, basically, not everybody can accept this. Not everybody can accept the possibility of living alone. Not alone. But the point is that the challenge, if marriage is, in fact, has the, the capacity to unite you to somebody for an endure, in an enduring way, even if the relationship is broken one ought to enter into it with great caution and counsel. But the other side of this truth, I think, is one of a cautious but very real hope. Jesus' words that he says, what God has brought together, let no man break asunder, the word is actually yoked. What God has yoked together, what God has brought you together to walk with an intention that you would do something, that it would be for your good, carries within it the promise that it is possible, even in this life, in broken marriages and relationships, to embody and know God's presence. This is hard counsel for those of us in the midst of painful relational dynamics, in the midst of broken or breaking marriages. I want to acknowledge that. But I also want to say this, that when the Lord told us to take up our cross and follow him, it was not a picture of an easy life. 
There's the picture of carrying something wooden that is heavy and leads to suffering. And the story of the gospel is that that is also a way of life. That taking up the cross, we find it to be the way of life. And so if you are married and in the context of a struggling marriage, which those are in some ways tautological statements, I want to just counsel you that the Lord has done this on purpose, that it may seem like a way of death. Perhaps what he intends for you in this is to find the road to discipleship in the dark and difficult path of loving another in the midst of their unlovableness. But wherever we are, I think the most important thing for us to take from Jesus' statements about marriage here is to remember that marriage tells a story. All of our lives, whether we are married, divorced, or single, all of our lives are in some way connected to the story of marriage. What Jesus says from Genesis, that the two have become one long before the time of Christ, Exegetes in ancient Israel saw this in connection with God's relationship to his people. The book of Hosea is a long and dramatic divorce story between God and Israel. I loved you as a husband, and yet you were unfaithful to me. God writes a certificate of divorce, and yet that's not the end for God and his people. God has a divorce story, and it's going forward still. The story Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 of marriage is really something of an allegory of Christ and the church, of the unity that will one day be between God and his people when heaven and earth are brought together at that great consummation, which has an important double overtone, that great consummation when we are brought into his presence fully. That is where all of us, married, divorced, single, are headed. And that means that each of our stories has a place in this biblical drama. If you're single and you're tired of these sermons on marriage uh, that just celebrate marriage or talk about how hard it is, you're on pilgrimage to that union which with all of these broken and very freighted marriages now uh, are also on pilgrimage. Because the truth is the Lord himself is coming for us. We are his. So, this week, remember, you're on your way. Amen.